Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Proofpoint and Proofpoint's EVP of Cybersecurity Strategy, Ryan Callumba, uh, is this week's sponsor guest and he's going to join us to share some thoughts uh, on how we can make better use of our regular users when it comes to fine-tuning alerts. Uh, so everything from asking users via Slack or whatever, hey, did you mean to send those 50 gig of sensitive files to Google Drive just now? Uh, and then there's the security use cases like, did you just install TeamViewer with your creds? Uh, you know, did you mean to do that? Yes. No, you have no idea what we're talking about. Um, so yeah, the idea being uh, that you can just really improve the quality of your signals by uh, asking users questions. So that is coming up later. Lena Lau was supposed to be joining us uh, for this week's news segment, but unfortunately she's down with COVID and uh, we wish her a speedy recovery. And in case anyone was wondering, last week I mentioned that my wife had just come down with COVID and I was expecting the same thing to happen to me. Uh, but in the end, it just it didn't happen. So I felt a bit stupid for a few days, but I never tested positive. So yeah, I don't know what happened there. Uh, but either way, I feel like I dodged the Rona bullet this time around. Uh, hopefully I haven't spoken too soon. But yeah, Adam uh, Barlow joins me now for a discussion of the week's news. G'day, Adam. Hey there, Pat. And look, we've got, you know, the usual grab bag of horrors uh, to get through this week. <laughs> so many horrors. <laughs> and let's start off by talking about Unitronics and default creds and just a big old bag of fail. Yeah, Unitronics are a vendor that makes some kind of, you know, PLC that's popular in water systems. Uh, their software had a default cred of 1111. Uh, which if you put it on the internet, you're going to have a bad time. And it turns out some people do put it on the internet uh, and a water authority in uh, Aliquippa in Pennsylvania uh, appears to have had said bad time. Yeah, so it looks like, what, is there some Iran-linked crew? Like, is this state-linked? Is it hacktivists? What do we, what do we know about who's actually doing this? Because it's not just this water treatment plant in Pennsylvania. Like, this is turning into a thing. Yes, so the uh, Aliquippa one was claimed by Cyber Avengers with a three, which is some kind of Iranian hacktivist group that does have a bunch of strong ties to the uh, Republican Guard in Iran. Yeah. Uh, so that's not a great sign. Uh, we have seen... CISA and some other warnings around uh, intrusions into water authorities. There's been a couple of other ones as well that didn't appear immediately related to the Unitronics thing. So we've seen compromises of business kind of IT side systems uh, at a water authority in Texas. Uh, there's been another one where maybe it was ransomware, but CISA seems sufficiently concerned uh, that they have been warning people in the industry about the focus. Uh, we have seen uh, the Unitronics thing obviously getting a bunch of attention. Interestingly, Showdown suggests that the majority of Unitronics devices on the internet are actually in Australia. So, yeah, Australia, mm. Australia and Singapore, number one and two, baby. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that ain't great. Um, but, you know, this reminds me of some years ago when we started seeing just a huge focus on Israeli water utilities yes. uh, coming from, from Iranian crews. And you, you just sort of wonder if that's what's happening now, if it's like a rerun of that but this time in, a, in the United States. Yeah, the ways that you break into the water utility is going to be pretty consistent, you know, across all sorts of jurisdictions, you know, default creds and, and field equipment and so on. Uh, so using the same playbook uh, against the US makes a whole bunch of yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, you, you just sort of wonder what the most effective thing to do about this sort of thing is, which is, I don't know, maybe make these water utilities use an upstream provider that does a bit of firewalling for them or something. 
But you know, then 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 you've got all sorts of access issues and whatever. So I I, I don't know that there's an easy solution. Here. No, there are, there don't seem to be any particular easy answers. And where U.S. authorities were attempting to more strongly, you know, either provide guidance or regulate, we've seen some pushback against that as well, which doesn't make any sense to me. So uh, I think though that there were some reasonable arguments about government overreach, given how the U.S. government was trying to do that. Some Republicans came forward and said this regulation is overreachy and doesn't quite make sense. And you know it really surprised me that I read through the criticism and thought, oh, okay, I kind of see what you mean here. You know, <laughs> so I, I, I think it's more an issue of like being unsure of like how the federal government can regulate this. Is it through the EPA? Is it through other things? Like how do you do it without it being overreached? So I, th- I, I just think it's a, a curly one. Let's put it that way. It's certainly complicated. And, you know, the reality is, even when you give organizations good guidance, they still probably don't know that they've got default cred PLCs on the internet. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, understanding what you have and your, you know, your asset inventory uh, and being able to make good choices about it. Like if we were able to do that already, you know, we would already be doing it. So, you know, it's struggle mm. town regardless, and especially for small water authorities that don't have the resourcing or expertise. Because, you know, we got a bit of a theme uh, to talk about this yeah, week. We do. Well, yeah, which is about this idea of like, you know, expecting organisations like that to patch. You know, expecting them to patch at all is a heavy lift. Yes. And then expecting them to patch within 48 hours uh, is, you know, kind of unreasonable. And we'll, we'll get into that part uh, in a little bit. But let's talk now uh, about the latest acquisition to join the Excellion uh, family. Uh, Adam, which is OwnCloud. Now, <laughs> what, what a name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this one's made probably too much news. Yes. So there's been a, a pretty nasty CVE pop up in a, a bit of software called OwnCloud. And this is one of those file transfer appliance type things, right? Like Move It, like Excellion. But the thing is, it looks like the component that is exploited is switched off by default. It was, you know, only added the vulnerability was only added quite recently it just doesn't look like this is going to be anything like the scale of the excelion or move it campaigns but it's picking up media coverage as if it is and i i think that's understandable because it's a similar type of bug and a similar type of technology but just once you actually take a closer look at this it doesn't seem like it's going to be a, a big and, and my excelion joke by the way uh is because yeah excelion actually bought this company recently <laughs> yeah so own card is like an open source um i guess like run your own file storage cloud solution made by some german company and yeah they were recently acquired by kiteworks which is what excelion changed their name to after their very embarrassing set of breaches uh and the bug itself is essentially like there's a PHP info that will disclose a bunch of information about the runtime environment, and that includes in containerized deployments, credentials and other things that would allow you to then gain access to it. So you are vulnerable if you had the relevant like API endpoint, which I think actually was some Microsoft related like graph API thing. Uh, so you had to be running that component never turned on and you had to be in a containerized deployment where the environment variables contain security critical stuff and then you had to have it on the internet. So that's not a particularly wide, I mean, I think overall the numbers we've seen were like 11,000 own cloud on the internet how many meet this prerequisite is really I th- not I th- I th- very sure i think it was like 900 someone said or yeah something like, like that. a pretty yeah, it's pretty, pretty small subset and so compared to other file transfer sorts of solutions like this is not a product that's in wide use by enterprises and a lot of them are not super vulnerable or likely to be in a vulnerable state so yeah it's got a lot of traction for probably not a lot of shells 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think this is something we need to watch. I mean, I, I had that interview with, uh, it was a sponsor interview with one of the Kroll people a while back. Um, and they really unsettled me by saying, oh, I was at George Glass, yeah, saying that um, he's expecting we'll see similar types of campaigns, not just targeting file transfer appliances, but things like there's a lot of systems that sit on the edge of a network that contain important information. Like um, the one that he cited that really freaked me out is payroll systems. Because, <laughs> yes. um, you know, you've got an O-Day in a payroll system, a common one, and you hit all of them. Yeah, so by no means is this going to taper off, this type of attack, but probably this one in own cloud isn't the one we need to be worried about. Yeah, I, I agree completely. There is a lot of nasty things on the edge of the network and people are very equipped to compromise all of them very, very rapidly when a bug arises. But in this particular case, you know, bullet probably dodged. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's turn our attention now to the continuing fallout from this so-called Citrix bleed. <laughs> Speaking uh, of incident. things on the edge of the network, God. Oh, oh. God. It's, uh, you know, we got, what just, we've just picked the worst ones uh, this week. But yes, yeah, Staples, the office supply retailer in the United States, they've had a terrible time. Uh, what else have we got here? We've got some hospitals in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh, this coverage, uh, the first one was from Cybersecurity Dive. Second one is from John Grieg over at The Record. And yeah, there's uh, something like 60 credit unions uh, facing outages in the United States, according to this piece by John Grieg, uh, because of attacks on their upstream providers. Do we know that these ones connect to Citrix Bleed? Uh, these ones, yes. Kevin Beaumont's been posting you know, screenshots of their Shodan he's been, Citrix. He's been doing the Shodan, Shodan screen grabs, yeah. Yes, yeah. So this one, Fedcom, definitely uh, looked very Citrixy, uh, and yeah, the big, big impact for all of the credit unions that used it. Yeah. Look, it's just continuing. This is going to have a reasonably long tail. Um, at least of another couple of months, I would expect, of uh, people just getting rinsed by this. Uh, funnily enough, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with a local manufacturer here in northern New South Wales. They had their production seriously impacted by the uh, problems at the Australian port operator, DP World. And I found that very interesting because they had, uh, you know, I, I, as far as I know, the disruption only lasted a few days. Um, at DP World, but it caused such a ripple through the supply chain and caused ships to get backed up and whatever that it led to multi-week delays in people's containers actually getting where they needed to go, uh, which has caused, yeah, big, big, big drama. So I found that interesting. Yeah, that, that is when you see the real-world impact because when, when we reported on that, like they were back up in a few days, that seemed pretty good, but understanding the actual impact of these events, you know, because diverted ambulances and, and so on, like we can kind of understand. But yeah, as you say, the ripples through the supply chain can be, you know, much bigger than the disruption started with. And yeah, we've also got some reports here about a payments processor called Tipalti, uh, which is quite large. Uh, they're having a bad time. I don't know if this is uh, Citrix related, but this is the Alpha V group uh, hitting them, Adam? Uh, yes, and also Alfie have been saying that they're specifically going to go in after customers of Tapalti, which includes things like Roblox and Twitch. Uh, so yeah. they're picking on the big customers and using that to apply pressure, but also maybe ransoming for data theft against downstream customers. Yeah, so uh, that brings to a close our little wrap of some of the notable ransomware incidents. I will say too that one thing that I've noticed that's been interesting that we've been seeing more and more of is some of these crews getting access to environments, exfilling data, but unable to deploy ransomware. And it looks like that might be what has happened in that case. And we know, remember last week I said, I don't think they deployed malware in the DP World case. Like right after we published the show, uh, it was confirmed that 
<laughs> no yeah. ransomware was deployed. So that that turned out to be right. Yeah. So maybe we are getting slightly better at you know catching it. What do they say? Left of boom is that the incident response term for it? But how much difference that makes? You know, when you're then denial of servicing yourself by taking things offline and all the subsequent costs, you know, the impact still matters. Well, better a four-day disruption than a three-week disruption, That's, right? This, this so, is true, yes. So we're improving the A on the CIA triad a little. <laughs> uh, Not so much still with some, the C. <laughs> still some work to do on the C, right? Let's talk about some comments now from Eric Goldstein, who is a top cybersecurity official at CISA. You sent this story to me and you were kind of doing a bit of a fist pump reading this one. Walk <laughs> us through it, Adam. Uh, so basically, he was giving a talk at a, at a conference, uh, and he said that, uh, and I quote, to say that our solution to cybersecurity is at least in part patch faster, fix faster, that is a failed model. And I'm very here for this, because as you say, patching within 48 hours, like that's proper hard, and patching at all is a thing that we still find hard and the idea that just yelling at people to patch better um, maybe isn't going to be the solution I'm, I'm here for people saying that bit out loud because it's true and then that leads into the discussion of well is it ultimately on vendors and IT architects and people who build these things to build systems that are resilient in the real world, not resilient in theory, not if you do everything perfectly, then you're fine. Like we need to build things that actually practically people can buy and operate in their environment. Yeah. I mean, this has been, this has been a 20 year bit of advice, yes. which is patch your stuff, you know, patch it quickly. And what, you think if we spend another 20 years just <laughs> saying that over and over, it's actually going to happen? No, it won't, right? So I think I think there's a lot to what he's saying. I think there's a lot to what you're saying, which is that we need to think about how to build systems, particularly for SMBs, particularly for you know water processing plants and whatnot. We need to be able to give them tools that they can deploy that aren't going to get them just instantly owned when someone reverses a patch. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the... the quality of the security especially the security services and devices that we sell people is just not good enough and is not in many cases fit for purpose like the fact that citrix got so many people owned in the last couple of months ultimately that's on citrix right mm. for not building robust systems but also for you know not using defense in depth not doing all the things that we tell people to when you read about bugs in you know um, appliances that don't use modern sandboxing don't use modern protections for memory corruption bugs i mean you see cisco products that are compiled without any compiler protections for memory corruption because the product is 15 years old underneath but yet still sold with all of the padlocks and shields and marketing yeah but see, i, I think you're great. off base with this as uh, as well to be honest because i don't think we can reasonably expect enterprise vendors to make stuff that is not going to get us owned you know like i i i think the the coolest thing uh, that I've seen that kind of addresses these types of issues uh, lately is that zero networks thing mm, where right, you have right, to right. go and authenticate through your SSO provider uh, before you get a get a port. Before you get network connectivity, yeah. I mean, there are you know, some like defense in depth options that we have yeah. not given enough credence to. And certainly, like, just not having network reachability to stuff goes a long way. Yeah, you do it. You do an SSO, and then it adjusts the firewall and actually lets you hit a port. <laughs> it's funny that we kind of come back to firewalling as being an actually effective control because it's kind of so gone out of fashion with web-based everything these days. But yeah, you make a solid point. Like, how many of these bugs 
wouldn't have been exploited if you just had a firewall in the way. Yeah, if you just couldn't get to them. And, and you know, if you had some sort of dynamic way to be able to provision network access via SSO. And I don't know if zero networks are the only ones doing this, but like I think that in particular is a really interesting product idea. Yeah. And I think it I think it really, I mean, it, I haven't implemented it personally. I, I imagine it's reasonably straightforward, but I don't know. You know, can you expect a water utility to implement a product like that? Again, I don't know. But my point is I like the thinking, right? Which is that just putting these things on the internet and letting all and sundry connect to them and exploit to them, it hasn't worked. And it's, it's, it's funny because... You know, when, when we make really big changes to how technology works, and I'm thinking IPv6, right? We did IPv6 and, and we haven't done IPv6, which is great, but like we rolled out V6 without ever stopping to think about what end-to-end -end reachability would mean for security again, right? Because we're so used to V4 NAT and they're actually being a network perimeter as opposed to everything being reachable. Uh, and when we can make changes like that without considering the real-world impact of it, Right, that's kind of how we get ourselves into these messes as an industry because you know we're not consistent and sensible and think things through. Right, we just YOLO stuff into you know with, with decisions that maybe make sense in one context, but big picture, we're just bad at this. And yeah. ultimately, it's on us as a tech industry. It's not on our customers. Right, they're the ones that have to clean up the mess, but we through whatever mechanism, be it defense and depth, be it good engineering, be it a combination of all of these things, like ultimately it's on us. And that I like, I like hearing CISA saying that's kind of where we've arrived at. Yeah. I don't know that it helps though. To... No, I mean, it's true though. I mean... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. I'm just, look, I'm just, it's, t it's the end of the year. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired. We're all so all tired. Stuff, right? so tired. It's funny though, you know, I saw, I think it was actually Kevin Beaumont uh, talking on, um, you know, Mastodon or, or, you know, Twitter or X or whatever the hell uh, saying, oh, you know, look, it's only a matter of time before these ransomware crews get O-Day uh, in some of these, you know, edge network devices and, oh, it'll be so much worse. I actually disagree with him. I think that like you don't need O-Day. Uh, as a ransomware crew, like look at what they've been able to do with this Citrix yeah. N-Day by reversing a patch. Why would you bother with O-Day and what would it meaningfully get you? Like would it get you anything that you didn't get already? Like what, what would that mean? Slightly more targets? I don't know. So I think it is at the point now where if you can reverse a patch, find an exploit and go for it. Like, I don't know, man, there's only a small subset of targets that will have patched. Yeah, exactly. So right. it, it, it won't make a meaningful difference. So I, I, I don't know that, you know, big scary O-Day is the thing that's going to make this meaningfully worse. I think we're already in a pretty bad spot. Well, I, I think so. Right? And, and being operationally sophisticated enough to get a piece of information about a bug, whether it's zero day, whether it's end day, and then being able to act on that information on a global scale in 48 hours, like ransomware crews can, and like we as a defense industry can't, that's the important thing. And ransomware has scaled out crime so well through the affiliate model and blah, 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 that yeah. they can do it and we can't defend. And well, I'm, I'm, working, on a, I'm working on a year in review uh, uh, podcast for next week. And that's one of the sections that I'm going to talk about with Dmitry Alperovich because you won't be joining us next week and we're going to talk about why that is later. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm calling it sort of the industrialization yes. of, of crime campaigns, right? Because it's something that's been predicted for 20 years, but we've actually finally got there. Hooray. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. That's that's great. Now look, speaking of speaking of uh, exactly this point. <laughs> uh, 
uh, talk to me about your favorite software stack and oh, what's happening to uh, so it. Adam? CISA put out a write-up uh, of a couple of intrusions into some US federal government systems uh, via Cold Fusion, the Adobe <laughs> hosting platform from the dawn of time. Uh, and this just makes the point so well. So these two Cold Fusion boxes were popped with some bug that came out this year, but the people who are running Cold Fusion had not patched in one case since 2016. And of course they got shelled and, and people pivoted onwards into their systems. And, you know, having Cold Fusion that is not up to date on the edge of your network, like that's been a bad idea for probably a decade. <laughs> and we were just talking about how patching is not an effective control because we can't do it in 48 hours. We've been saying patch your Cold Fusion for a decade and it's still getting people owned. So yeah. Probably more than a decade. Probably but yeah. more. Probably more. Good job, Adobe. Well, and, and, and the good news uh, just keeps rolling, Adam, because this <laughs> next piece by Darina Antonik uh, over at the record is like, you know, the, the Kremlin, Kremlin-backed Kremlin hackers are having a hell of a time using the advanced, you know, advanced <laughs> tradecraft of like owning exchange boxes that haven't been patched. <laughs> yeah. I mean... It gets the job done, and I guess they're going after government systems in Europe that uh, you know are somewhat laggardly with patching. It seems, um, but I mean, there's laggardly with patching, like we've been you know bad mouthing, and then there's just leaving your exchange on the internet. Which I, I mean, can we can we say both things? Can we say both is bad, like that it's the vendor's fault, but also <laughs> there's a little bit of fault of uh, government uh, agencies man. getting themselves throw my computer Russians. into the ocean. I'm yes. gonna eat my phone. I'm gonna move to a to a live in a tent in the forest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think after this week's yes, yes, God. yes. And I have noticed too, and this is something I'll, I'll I'll touch on next week. Is this year? I mean, the news cycle has been very repetitive, right? Uh, more so than usual. So that's uh, you know that's been interesting. But 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 we do have something kind of notable here. Uh, Joe Warminski over at the Record is reporting that CISA has actually added a Chrome, uh, a Google Chrome bug to the CISA uh, Kev list. And yeah. I, I think th is this one is this one Oday? Uh, this one was, I believe, exploited. Uh, yeah, I and then and then Tag Google Tag found it, right? and then Google Tag found it. Like Google Tag hasn't linked to an exploit for it, so it's a little bit unclear. But yeah, it's, if it's ended up in the Kev, and there's a few other Chrome bugs that have ended up in the Kev over the years, but. <laughs> You know, there's also a D-Link bug that wound up in the Kev, which well, was kind of funny. Well, exactly. Yeah, hey, that's not in the that's not in the run sheet. But why don't you tell the listeners oh, about God. that one? That's uh, funny. So the Kev list removed a D-Link exploit, and I asked, well, how does something get into the Kev list if it's not really? Anyway, it turns out it was a fake exploit written by some guy with like fake screenshots in an advisory, which was then copy pasted by some worm developers into their Mirai style botnet, which was infecting real systems. And at some point, CISA went, okay, all the exploits that are in this worm, we're going to stick them in the cave list because clearly the worm is working, so they must be working. But it was a fake exploit. And then some guy wrote a blog <laughs> post and challenged the MITRE, you know, CVE registration for it. Uh, and they had to pull it out of Kev. And I said... Well, they pulled, they pulled, they removed the CVE identifier They removed well, the CVE. it's not a real bug. So yeah, it's like a... It from Kev a and, hoax bug. Yeah. and I, I pasted in Slack. I'm like, how can a bug that doesn't exist end up in the Kev? Surely there's some degree of editorial oversight of Kev. Then I went and dug into what the actual story was and it turns out totally makes sense how it ended up yeah. there. Um, but, you know, the initial story was pretty funny. Of Yeah, which is like how did bug. this not real bug make yes. it onto a known exploited? But, but, you know, it was like known exploited yes. attempts. Yeah. Uh, but it just turns out the bug was fake, was even totally though the worm fake. authors didn't know that it was. It was just, yeah. what, a, what a what a world! Yeah, and, what a world. Um, yeah, that was fun. And of course, you know the CISA Kev maintainers can't go out and. No. I mean, that seems pretty good verification, to be honest. Like if you've confirmed that someone's using it in the wild, yes, exactly right. And you just haven't confirmed that it worked. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, in the end, you're like taking the word of the, of the worm developers that the exploit was good, honestly, not that unreasonable for them. So, yeah. like, 100% uh, give a pass for the Kev maintainers on this one. Uh, but anyway, we should all be patching our Chrome all the time because those Chrome maintainers work hard to get the bugs out quickly and they really do get used in the wild. So grim. Now let's talk about Okta. And uh, Okta has had a bit of a rough year, PR-wise. And I yes. think... Look, I think a lot of it's not justified. So full disclosure, Okta has not sponsored anything Risky Biz in 2023. They are coming back as a sponsor in 2024. So you have to understand that from January 2024, there is a commercial relationship between Risky Business and Okta. But I don't believe that is influencing what I'm about to say, but you might have a different opinion. Anyway, disclaimer done. Yes. Um, you know, you often hear people talk about uh, Okta's breach during the lapsus incident, right? Where someone got a screen cap. And really what it looks like is all they got was a screen cap. But this created a perception of this huge breach at Okta. And I think that sort of tainted subsequent coverage. You know, then you had the scattered spider people getting access to Okta super admin accounts by doing social engineering and where victim companies like MGM had kind of crazy permissions set up where the help desks could reset MFA on super admin accounts and stuff, which I don't think is really Okta's fault. They got bad press around that as well. Now, one where they've justifiably gotten some bad press is when their support got owned, you know, and this is the recent thing, someone has stolen a bunch of uh, HAR files and some of those contained secrets that the attackers were able to remove from the HAR files and then use as, you know, tokens and whatnot, and then uh, onwards uh, into, a, uh, I think, a five Okta customers. So that's bad. And, you know, the biggest criticism that I think has landed out of all of that is that they should have been sanitizing HAR files that customers were submitting. Um, Cloudflare, which was one of the affected orgs, actually released a HAR file sanitizer to GitHub as a way to shade Okta, which I thought was actually quite funny. <laughs> and Okta should actually, actually absolutely use yes. it. Um, but now we've got reporting that, oh, you know, they said it was only 130 people who were affected in this Okta thing, but it turns out it was all of their customers. And, well, not really, Adam. The remainder of their customers appear to have had some details taken, in particular email address and name, like maybe in some cases last login dates, etc., but not a, a whole bunch of other useful data. And yeah. given that we're seeing social engineering attacks on Okta admins, that's probably still data that you know you don't want to have. You don't stolen. want it out there. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. But we're seeing headlines of like all Okta customers impacted in this breach, and it's like, well, kinda, you know. Brian Krebs' headline was Okta breach affected all customer support users, which is true, but it's... Technically, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it makes a bit of a false equivalency in terms of what the impact for those customers were. Like, obviously, Okta shouldn't be having their support systems compromised, but yes. it's just Okta as... Uh, you know, because it has such a high position of trust in, in, in people's organizations. Like it, it, it's kind of reasonable that they do get held to a high standard, but it does feel a little bit unfair on them lately. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think they do need to do better, but I also think Okta just grew at warp speed for a long time. It's the Microsoft problem. I'm guessing unlike Microsoft that doesn't rotate the key mat that underpins their authentication events, <laughs> like that they keep that hanging around for five years or six years. I'm guessing Okta do some of those fundamentals right. I mean, I remember once when you or one of your team members found uh, Oday in Auth0, which is now an Okta uh, company, you reported it to them. They had, a, they had it fixed like 
lickety split. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they've always been a response. pleasure to deal with in terms of how they respond. It's yeah. just that, I mean, some of the PR side of it has been a little clumsy in some points yes. earlier on. You know, they seem to yep. have got a bit more polished over the last couple of years, I guess, with practice. Yeah. But it's just they are so important and they are so big. And they get a lot of things right, but they you know, they do got to get well, it very, very right, you know? I think just trying to trying to operate at this scale when, I mean, they kind of, are they a, I mean, I guess they're not a startup anymore. So, you know, they're like, they're huge, a multi-billion company. They've just had to grow so much. And I think, though, that all of this bad publicity is going to get the people inside who who want to do some of these big projects like it's going to get them the authority to do it um but you know there's clearly always going to be a lot of work to be done at an org like okta just like there is at an org like microsoft yeah matt capco over at subsecurity dive reported on the ceo and co-founder todd mckinnon on okta's earnings call and it really you get the impression from him that it has really become important to them um and they've got an opportunity to make the improvements and do the work. And I'm pretty sure their attention, you know, the executive's attention has been grabbed uh, and presumably everyone else that wants Okta to succeed and make money. Because one thing I didn't realise is they never actually made a profit. So maybe in that sense, they're still a startup. I don't know. Um, <laughs> they, they've grown super quickly. Like, as you say, they're a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, but they only lost $81 million in the last quarter. So that's a record Which is really not much in the context of a business that size. No, so they're clearly they're getting, prioritizing. They're getting closer. <laughs> yeah, they're prioritizing growth, right? Like yeah. they could make a profit if they wanted to. But, you know, as, as is typical these days, just accelerate, accelerate, accelerate. Exactly, right? yeah. And that does um, come with growing pains. Yeah, it does, right? Imagine if you were tasked with managing the security of Okta support. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And we we know some people who have similar tasks, uh, yeah. and yeah, it's a it's a challenge, that's for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I let's see. I mean, I, I I'm just not at the point where I can condemn them. Yeah. You know, that's all. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Um, obviously, need to do better, but I can't point at this. It just It's not like the Storm 0558 stuff where it's like, what? Yes. You know what I mean? You didn't rotate that key for seven years. Like, it's not like that. Yeah, um, and I felt bad for Okta reading some of the headlines this week, yeah. you know, when we were yeah. preparing the run sheet. So here we are saying, Okta, you know, you need to do better, but honestly, you could have also done a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's, that's actually it too. It? <laughs> uh, so let's move on. And uh, good news, everyone. Uh, Russian and Chinese interference networks are building audiences ahead of 2024, warns Meta. That's the headline off this uh, piece by Alexander Martin, again, in the record. Yeah, yes. So Facebook's been talking about influence campaigns that have been ramping up from both China and Russia uh, and those that are you know, preparing for uh, the upcoming American elections. They also talked about uh, the fact that they are seeing Chinese networks focusing more on things outside of China's region. I mean, we've seen them doing influence ops, uh, you know, in Asia, but gearing up um, for the US. And this ties in well with elements of the US government deciding that dealing with, um, you know, online fraud or online disinformation somehow is infringing upon their rights. And there was this sort of injunction against the US government cooperating with Facebook a while ago, which makes no sense. Um, And Facebook was out um, complaining about the lack of 
information sharing that can go on now because they've been injuncted against, which all seems a little bit dumb given... Is this part of that whole, oh, big tech is, uh, you know, is persecuting, persecuting conservatives? Is yes, persecuting conservatives yeah. by... The Department of Homeland Security is censoring speech. Yes. Because they, they yeah. Because anyway. they have lists of inauthentic accounts <laughs> yeah. that are being used for propaganda. So, uh, it, I mean, it must be so frustrating working at Facebook and, and seeing some of these things happening and then being hobbled by your own side <laughs> in yeah. dealing with it. So, frustrating. Well, and it looks like there's a bunch of, you know, speaking of all these sort of disinformation ops, uh, Ellen Nakashima and uh, David Dimolfetta uh, over at the Washington Post have a story up um, about how, like, if the Pentagon wants to do more influence ops, uh, they're going to need sign-off from very senior people. And this is so, it, like, it's so clear what happened here. Remember, like, I, I can't even remember if it was this year or last year, but it looked like someone uncovered this, like, ultra-low traction, ultra-low engagement information operation that kind of tracked back to the Pentagon. And it was just, like, real bad. Like, just absolutely <laughs> did absolutely nothing. And everyone, you know, had a big freak out about it because it's like US disinformation and whatever. And it, and, it, and it looked pretty clear that it was someone maybe not that senior who was just giving it a crack with a few fake Twitter accounts. It was like a like a made-up Persian language news site that was just reposting like Voice of America content and stuff. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, it was just... Compared to what China and Russia are doing and, and Iran, like it's such kind of amateur hour stuff. But yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So now, 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 uh, you know, the, the Washington Post has reported that um, if people in DOD want to do similar stuff in the future, they need sign off from very <laughs> senior people, which is just a way of saying, don't do that again. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's just funny comparing and contrasting you know, the Russia and Chinese scale of these things with the, you know, the US with all of its multi-billion dollars of military budget, still bad at online info ops. So, yeah. But the US, the US has always sucked at info ops. Like it has always been quite terrible uh, at that. Yeah, I mean, the US is more about, you know, shock and awe and blue jeans and McDonald's. And, you know, they're very good at all of those things, but not so good at the subtle, uh, <laughs> subtle info ops. Uh, so what do we got here? We got a story about the Sinbad crypto mixer, uh, which is one of the uh, crypto mixers allegedly used by uh, North Korean hackers. Uh, it has been seized by uh, federal, uh, uh, federal agencies from a few different countries. Yes, some shocking development there. Who would have thought that the cryptocurrency mixer would get seized and sanctioned? Uh, this particular one had been used for, I think the Lazarus group had been putting some of their like Horizon Bridge and Axe Infinity money, which was like, that's what, $900 million worth of funds they stole. Some millions went through Sinbad. So yeah, no surprise. And we got another one here actually about North Korean uh, hackers. We've got Kim Suki. Uh, they've been sanctioned by the US government. Don't know that that's going to make enough <laughs> much of a difference, but you know, the US do love to sanction people. They do. And I mean, it does have effects on cryptocurrency networks and, and on, you know, Kim Suki is one of the groups that we've seen using overseas contractors and, and North Koreans working overseas to bring money back. So like maybe it'll have some effect. I don't know, but nice, you know, may as well. Like why not sanction them? Why not? Uh, now, this, this connects to North Korea as well. And this has just been one of my favorite stories to watch play out over the last couple of years. You know, there was this guy, Christopher Ems and uh, Virgil Griffith. Christopher Ems is British. Virgil Griffith is American. And they were the ones who put on like these how to evade sanctions with cryptocurrency conferences in Pyongyang. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one, I think it was Ems. Like he's fled to Russia. Because <laughs> uh, I think he was in like Dubai or something. And... 
Uh, it's just been, it's just wild. Did not but there's face a, music. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a third uh, Westerner who is a apparently some sort of Spanish uh, aristocrat, um, <laughs> who's now who got arrested at a train station in Madrid, uh, and it looks like uh, he, you know the U.S. Authorities are seeking to extradite him. Uh, Alexander Martin has a great write up here uh, over at the record on this one. But I just, you know, these guys, it's the <laughs> around and find out, uh, just personified. <laughs> exactly. And I, I love it. Um, yeah, this guy, uh, Alejandro Caudebenos, I think he's out on bail in Spain now uh, whilst he's trying to avoid uh, his extradition. But yeah, it's just so funny seeing Crypto Bros getting some comeuppance finally. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole thing has just been um, uh, crazy, uh, and we got it. Look, the best headline <laughs> of the week uh, award goes to Lorenzo over at uh, TechCrunch. He's over at TechCrunch these days, uh, and the headline is "Used by only a few nerds, Facebook kills PGP encrypted emails." <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great headline. Sad for us '90s cypherpunks, uh, but yeah, it's it's so very true. Apparently, and I didn't even know this, there was an option in Facebook where you could opt in to having them PGP crypto your mails from Facebook. So when they send you a, hey, you've got a new follower, or someone tagged you in a photo, you could get that PGP encrypted to you, uh, which. Wow, I mean, I guess whatever one engineer at Facebook implemented that, good on you. Uh, but given that even Phil Zimmerman, uh, the inventor of PGP, doesn't use PGP anymore, yeah, about about time to turn that feature off. So, <sighs> yeah, yeah, it's just funny. Anyway, Fun great headline, cracker headline. Yes. Um, look, that's it for this week's news discussion. Uh, we should mention though that you know that's it for you this year because in a few days from now. Uh, you're actually getting some surgery, so you're going to be you're going to be recovering uh, as we put down the last show for the year. Like, if you're feeling okay, you're going to join us, but it looks like probably you will not. Uh, yes, they are going to be digging into my face, uh, into my sinuses with some endoscopic tools and doing some stuff up in there, and probably, I, I don't know, I'm going to be in very good talking condition uh, yeah. after that has happened, but uh, at the very least, I'll be reading the news list uh, before you guys talk about it. And and look, can I can I just give the listeners a quick recap on your on your health? What happened? Because people have asked me, right? Can I give the short yeah, version? Yeah, you, you can you can give people the short version. It's, yeah, it's so very it's very nice that listeners care uh, about why I had disappeared for a few weeks there. Yeah. So the short version is: you were in the United States, got a very severe nosebleed um, that just wouldn't stop. Went to the doctors, who took your blood pressure and found that it was at oh my god, call an ambulance immediately levels. Uh, and had probably been at those levels for quite a while, and your nosebleed basically formed because your blood pressure was so extreme that you sprung a leak. Yeah, basically um, my nose popped. <laughs> yes, you 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 exploded. Um, so you know that wasn't great. So obviously they had to get your blood pressure under control, which they have done, uh, which is which is great. And also they had to you know give you a proper look at to make sure uh, that you know your organs weren't paced uh, from having blood pressure like that for quite a long. time time uh and meanwhile because you had this horrible nosebleed it's messed things up in your sinuses and that's what you're finally getting to to uh getting rectified uh actually in, in, in a few days that's that's the basic summary yeah the the yeah. extra funny bit for me was i was actually in silicon valley at the time so i ended up in stanford <laughs> hospital which is a wonderful in the mark in the mark andreessen unit in the mark andreessen emergency unit yeah and so it was it was very interesting seeing what very high-end very expensive american healthcare is like because i had 
doctors up the wazoo and MRIs and all sorts of very, very yeah. fancy treatment. And, you know, the building is lovely and all the staff were beautiful. And I'm afraid of what the bill is going to be like when my insurer finally well, gets and I'm, it. Well, <laughs> and I hope it's as high as possible because your travel insurer who will be covering this uh, is the same travel insurer that screwed me uh, <laughs> recently on something. And when I saw that you were in a very expensive hospital and I think you sent me even a picture of the menu that you were ordering your dinner from, I was <laughs> thinking- room service in the hospital it's so good i believe my words to you were please get the lobster because <laughs> yeah. uh, anything you could do to maximize what these wipes have to pay you uh, would be would be splendid so look best of luck uh, for your surgery in a few days. I hope it goes well. I'm sure it will. You've got uh, you know, a very competent surgeon uh, taking care of it. And you know, you're going to feel a lot better when this is done. Hopefully we can talk to you next week, but I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic about yeah. that. I have not checked to see if the hospital I am in has uh, Citrix on the border. So maybe I'll get ransomware and they'll cancel the op. So who knows? Well, we will see, but I will try and show up next week uh, and we can enjoy all of the terrible stuff that's happened this year. And Dmitry Alperovich will be joining me for a look back on the year that was 2023 uh, next week. And obviously, if any big news breaks, we'll be talking about that as well. But uh, Adam, that's it. Thank you so much for all of your contributions over the year. And indeed, now you're working with us here at Risky Biz and managing a whole bunch of stuff as well. So thank you for that. It's just terrific to be working more with you. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for 2024. It's going to be a cracker year. Yeah, it's going to be good fun. It's really nice to have a bit more time and focus uh, on Risky Biz and all of the terrible and wonderful things that we get to talk about every week. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Uh, big thanks to him for that. And, uh, yeah, he's going to be back next year when he's had his head, uh, you know, drilled and bored, drained and replumbed. Uh, we, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Uh, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ryan Calumber, the EVP of Cybersecurity Strategy with InfoSec Behemoth Proofpoint. And we're talking about how we can make better use of users when it comes to filtering certain types of security events and alerts. Uh, it's something that's come up before uh, during a sponsored interview I did with Tynes, who are the no-code automation platform. And like some of their customers have used uh, Tynes to instrument asking questions of users like, did you just log in from Russia? Uh, yes, no, maybe, don't understand. You know, that's that sort of information can be uh, extremely valuable when you're trying to figure out uh, how serious an alert is. Well, it turns out Proofpoint has been baking some similar features into its products and, you know, have been asking questions of users of their products, like mostly their DLP products, and they found it just worked really well. So they're doing more of it. So here's Ryan Calumba to talk about that. We've had some success with our kind of your more classic DLP use cases, right? When it comes to people sharing unusual amounts of data in cloud file sharing services, that is an obvious thing to prompt the end user around. Right. It, you might not want to do this if you are running an insider risk program and you're looking at somebody as an actively malicious insider. But if it's somebody who is just putting a ton of stuff on some random cloud file sharing site and they're not using whatever the corporate standard is where you have a bunch of controls, it's an obvious thing to prompt them around. And you can clean up a lot of that data exposure before it even starts. The other one is the classic, uh, I even hate to use the acronym, but you know, DSPM, Data Security Posture Management Use Case around, hey, that's in OneDrive, it's set to public. We deal with this in even in terms of school districts, right? You have an individual education plan for a special needs child 
and you're just trying to get it to that kid's parents, a lot of people will just set that to public because it's the easiest thing to do. And being able to actually have some control around that and pulling in the end user is a lot more tractable than having anybody go through millions of files with different sets of permissions that apply to them. And like this is something you're trying to do more of, right? Because uh, it beats just generating alerts that no one looks at. Creating more alerts for the mountain of alerts is not really, more alerts for the alert god is not really a great strategy. I think we can all agree on that. But moving forward from that premise, it becomes a really interesting thing to think through. All right, well, how would I distribute the labor required to figure out, well, this is a login that doesn't make any sense. This is installation of something that doesn't make any sense, or this is use or manipulation of data that doesn't make any sense. Can I actually involve the end user in making that call and take some of the burden off the analysts who would otherwise have to handle that alert and look at it in the context of all of the other things that they're trying to do? So maybe it's worthwhile starting on the initial compromise side, right? Because this is the sort of workflow that should have existed for a very long time. It's the was this you piece from... Yeah all consumer internet and financial services. It's a really basic part of the package there, but we haven't adopted it enough. And we're trying to build these really fragile conditional access policies uh, and not simply asking our users, was this you? Uh, yeah. prob probably through a channel other than email, because you should probably assume the email is compromised if you're asking the user, was this you? Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that myself. Like if you, even if you plummet through to Slack, it's like, well, technically they might get in the middle. But I mean, you know, again, this is designed to be, you know, a productivity thing that's going to save you a bit of time. It's a, it's another signal. It's another input. It's, it's nothing's ever definitive, right? Um, right. So let, let's get that out of the way. But I think when, you know, when Tynes were talking about it, they were saying, yeah, like, unusual geographic login you can plumb that through to slack hey did you just log in from russia i i can think of um do you remember that water utility years ago where it hit the news that russian hackers had hacked into some really sensitive um you know water treatment plant or something in, in the united states and it turned out it was just one of their staff who was on vacation in Russia and logged in to do something. <laughs> yes. So, you know, could have, could have saved us some work, uh, could have saved everyone some work uh, there if they had have, uh, had this in place. Well, absolutely. And I think you can go past the login one to the, did you add a new MFA factor, right? And Slack is good. SMS is good. It, anything that is outside of the email channel is probably good in that case, right? Mm -hmm. Adding an MFA factor is a really good one. We've actually also done... Did you add a new OAuth app, right? Because that's yeah. a classic persistent mecha persistence mechanism in the cloud. There's lots of legitimate use cases. There are quite a few illegitimate ones. And it's just, it's the sort of thing that an end user, you can either ask them, yes, I did this. No, I did didn't do this. Or I have no idea what you mean. Uh, yes. And it's going to tell you what you need to know. Yeah, exactly. Like, and it's that third option there, which is, yeah, if a user just has no idea what on earth you're talking about, that's a fair indication that there's been shenanigans. Exactly. Exactly. If you don't know what an OAuth app is, or you didn't know what an M365 app was, or that you could connect it to your account, you probably didn't do that. And it's something that's worth looking into and probably something that can be resolved very quickly and maybe even in an automated way without actually involving an analyst. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples you gave me when we were talking about this over the few days leading up to this interview is uh, remote management tools as well, because they yep. are often, 
But that's tricky, right? Because sometimes you will get people who are socially engineered into installing them and you ask someone, did you install this? And they say yes. And then you kind of flag that as legitimate. Like, let's not pretend this is going to be, you know, comprehensively wall-to-wall good signals. But that leads me to my next question, right? Which is you've actually introduced this sort of approach into some of your products. Where Mm -hmm. has it been most useful and where has it not been so useful? It's really, really useful for certain things around kind of initial compromise. That's where we've gotten it to scale, right? Reporting suspicious messages, automating the workflows behind that. These are, this is not new ground, right? You could argue that actually that was the, the first scaled security automation use case that involved the end user was report fish uh, using something like a button. Uh, and, and of course, things like awareness, right? Awareness is a great feedback loop that you can use all kinds of different ways in terms of actually engaging the user in a way that's specific to the action that they've taken. The RMM use case that you mentioned, I think, is is a hard one to solve because sysadmins are using things for legitimate reasons, and you do have people socially engineered into installing RMMs. But to me, it's one of the best off-label use cases for our DLP technology now, because RMM installation in places that make no sense, including through the web browser, because there's web-based RMM functionality that we're seeing abused as well, mostly for data theft. Those are actually really good signals. Uh, I would argue that they're not great. They're not perfect. You can't fully automate the workflows behind that, but it's a really, really good thing to detect. It's going to be a little bit better than, in most cases, trying to get it after an EDR doesn't pay any attention to an RMM uh, because it has nothing to do with malware. It's mm. the it's it's an intractable problem in a lot of other ways, and it might as well be looked at this way. Yeah, yeah. I guess these are lo- these are going to be lower volume queries, aren't they? So the chances of user fatigue are pretty are pretty low. We don't. We used to actually look for things like Tor browser installation when it came to why are you installing this type questions that you could then prompt the user around. Now it is things like RMMs because it mm. does have an incredibly high correlation with malicious activity that's not the sort of really, maybe you're violating some terms of your employment agreement, but you're not actually really putting the whole organization at risk that you'd get when you installed a Tor browser. Uh, And it is the sort of thing that doesn't happen even in a really large organization all that often. Uh, And even if you could uh, look at who's installing it and you're pinging the admin behind that as opposed to the user who's box it's getting installed on those are also really useful things because it's a really simple set of variables you're looking at and it's not this esoteric kind of ai driven is this alert really a true positive or not kind of approach it's well, something speak, to look speaking at. of ai I'm, I'm actually admiring the self-restraint here ryan because at this point <laughs> i would have expected you to say that you could use a large language model for the portion of this that interacts with the user. So you can ask them, you know, instead of just asking them a binary yes or no, it's like, hey, you know, I'm an AI chatbot from chatbot. tech, right? Um, did you install this or do you not want know what we mean? We're just trying to figure out what, what went on here. I mean, that's, that's an area where an LLM, you know, because as I've often said, like I think it's most useful as an interface, not as a replacement for human thinking. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, in, the, in this sort of case, I, I can imagine that it would be a very useful interface for doing that sort of stuff with a, with a user. Because yeah, you could exactly. go a little bit deeper than a yes or no question, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, and in those cases where you do need to go past a yes or no question, it makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. And there's another use case here that will actually soon be part of the Proofpoint family, which is misdirected email. Right. Uh, we acquired yeah, Cassian. <laughs> yeah, you did, a, you did an acquisition on this, right? And it's so funny. It's one of those things that sounds like, what, that's a whole company? 
Uh, and yeah, apparently it is, and you just bought it. But yeah, walk us through it. Yeah, well, number one GDPR <laughs> source of fines is misdirected email. Number one HIPAA violation. Uh, once we invented full disk encryption, so people. Well, laptops. yeah, yeah, that's right. It used to be. It used to be uh, uh, laptops left in taxis was the number exactly. one sort of exactly. privacy law uh, problem. But uh, yeah, these days misdirected emails. Misdirected email, right? and again, it's one of those. OG infosec problems that just hasn't been solved at scale yet, and Tessian really did that brilliantly. Yeah, so that's, the name, that's the name of the company, user. right? Tessian. Yeah, and, Tessian you just, exactly. and you just bought them. Uh, we announced uh, the intent to acquire. Uh, we're hoping to close it relatively soon. And okay, that so will, you're, about, you're about to you're about to close about to close it. on that acquisition. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's one of those use cases where your pattern of email sending is incredibly predictive of future sending and autocomplete as it kills us in iMessage uh, when we send uh, naughty things to our parents or I have siblings. no idea what the duck you're talking about. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's maybe even more harmful when it comes to email addresses because it's autocomplete is dumb, right? It's never been smart. Mm. And it gets people into massive amounts of trouble because you can't unsend an email the way you actually can unsend an iMessage now. Uh, and in certain cases, unsend an SMS. Uh, and these are the sorts of things that, yes, obviously GDPR fines and HIPAA fines are bad. Uh, really, really sensitive data has gotten disclosed this way too. So it's the sort why, of why problem you, that just makes sense to solve. I, I would have thought this would be, for a company like Proofpoint, a pretty straightforward engineering proposition. Like, why did you have to buy this? I'm uh, genuinely curious. Uh, we we had actually bought uh, built a, a version of it, uh, but it's always nice to get one that's been tested at scale with millions and millions of users. So it was really more yeah. an acceleration choice rather than anything else. Yeah, I mean I think that's the thing, right? Like it's everything seems simple and still until you start bumping into the into the corner cases. Like that's Exactly, exactly. That's and the thing that happens. It's 99% of a of a sort of market ready product is just the engineers having bumped into uh all of those weird corner cases, having heart attacks because of, you know, various things breaking, causing drama for customers, etc, exactly. etc. Yeah. And that's doubly true when the product interfaces with the end user. Yeah, and that's where you really have to nail the UX and, and nail it at scale. And to your point, we just saved ourselves a lot of time and our customers a lot of heartache by uh, by trying to accelerate that one. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, thank you uh, for all of your contributions over the year. And you'll be back uh, in 2024 to to do this with us more, uh, which is great. Um, a pleasure to chat to you. Great to see you, and uh, yeah, chat to you in 24, my friend. Absolutely, always a pleasure, Pat. And hopefully, we'll all be doing less work in 2024. That was Ryan Callumber there with this week's sponsor interview. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Proofpoint for being a Risky Business sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'll be back next week with the final episode of the year with Dimitri Alperovich and maybe Adam Boileau. <laughs> Let's see how he's feeling. Uh, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.